This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. It might be cold outside today, but it's warm in here. Say hi to M2 Abby Fife. Hi. Second year MD PhD student Miranda Skeen is here. Hello, hello. M2, sort of, Mackenzie Walhoff is in the house. I still take offense that people call me M2. It's like you M2 be? round two. I don't know. Well, you're Not really an M2 M3. Mackenzie's on her path externship, so she's taking a... I finished a, my M2 year, though. You finished your M2. Oh, so you're an M3. Yeah, but then that also confers a lot more responsibility and expectations, so I also don't like saying that. Can we say M2 you know, and you're, a half? Yeah. You're a difficult person to please, aren't you? Yeah, mm-hmm. We've also got today, for the first time in the show, Writing and Humanities Program Director, Kate DeCherry. Yay! Hi! Kate, I'm glad you're here today because we have a question from a short code listener who uh, wanted to be anonymous, so we'll, we'll call him Scribbles and Words and Paper, about getting published. Mm-hmm. Let's hear from Scribbleson. I have a question for you regarding the writing and humanities work you do. I am an MS4 with a short piece I did for a class assignment and was told it had potential for publication. Good. This is not anything I've pursued before, and have no clue where to look for avenues to publish something like this. A reflection on the unexpected difficulties of this profession. Is there any way you would recommend sending this type of work? I greatly appreciate any feedback you are able to give. You nailed the British accent there. I think... (laughs) I have no clue. <laughs> I'm just very much enjoying this like Fallout 4 British butler robot that's just giving me this advice. I love it. Uh, so Kate, what do you what do you think? Uh, well, I can't answer in a British accent. I wish I could, uh, but um, I think I know you're gone. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of possibilities. I think um, if we'll, so, this is what I would say. I would say first. Think about who you want to read the piece. The first thing is think about who your audiences are, when whatever you're looking to publish. Um, and so if this is a piece of personal writing, it could go anywhere. There are lots of different sort of mainstream publications that publish health-related things or professional-related pieces. Um, and so you could look at that. Or if you really want to aim for medical students and a medical community specifically, then you can look at health humanities publications. You could look at journals like the one we publish here. The Examine Life Journal. Available yes. At the There are a number of health humanities um, publications that take personal writing. This sounds like it's probably nonfiction prose, personal writing. Um, and so you could also look at that. So I would say um, do you spend a little time and do a little research and also reach out to people like me and others who you you can find on the internet who can help you. Um, it's hard to give specific advice because I haven't read the piece, but I would say think about who you want your readership to be and then do a little work. And then once you've kind of narrowed down the part of the publishing world you're looking at, I would read some read some of those journals or websites or publications to see what m- most similarly matches the what you've produced. So usually what a publication will say is, we recommend that you look at our journals or our website or our articles and see if your piece and your work is a good fit or a good match. That's our that's our, the best advice that most 
um, publications will give you. So I would also say do that. So narrow down kind of your audience and the the area of the market you want to be working in, and then um, and then read some of those and to figure out which specific journals might be good. And or find individuals like me who are happy to receive requests and guide people individually in terms of where they might best place their work. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, I, I, I wasn't even thinking of, for some reason, I wasn't even thinking of, um, popular press mm -hmm. stuff, but that, um, but I should have, because I have in the past noticed that they really enjoy getting pieces from, uh, people about medicine, um, the culture of medicine. You're talking about, um, uh, a reflection on the, what did he, what did he call it? Re reflection on, uh, uh, the surprising issues involved in practicing medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> This is uh, this is grist for the mill. And um, I would also say that for, that's for a lot of publications. Yeah, that's a, that's I think a lot of publications like you think of like the Huffington Post and a lot of these sort of mainstream publications, they have to generate a lot of content. Mm -hmm. um, they get a lot from people who are writers or journalists. So perspectives from people in other professions are unusual, I would think. Um, Eye-catching for them. Yeah, yeah eye-catching for them and unique. Um, and 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 even, you know, all major publications and online publications have like sort of health and wellness and professional um, sort of threads to what they're publishing. I would say most do. Um, so you can look at those, if, especially if, if the, I, again, I haven't read the piece, but if the general content is sort of um, for, for a general audience to be thinking about these kinds of things um, and you'll reach more people that way. And Miranda, you pointed out the difference between publishing this kind of piece that he's talking about and scientific publication, mm -hmm. totally different animal, totally different um, uh, technique, I think, for finding a publication, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for starters, if you're publishing something that's more of an editorial or more of an opinion, it doesn't have to be peer reviewed. And peer review takes up probably the most amount of time when you're publishing something in research fields. So you have to kind of, you know, write up your draft. It has to be within very specific guidelines. Like I think nature makes you condense it down into something like five pages and they require massive amount of work in order to get it down to something you can publish in nature so you have to go very specific guidelines and then it goes to the peer review committee and then they send you back it's like this whole months-long process of figuring out what to change and what to keep so like i suppose uh in, i suppose for the uh for the editorial style publication of the opinion pieces they may also have guidelines that help them choose and, and so to the extent that they let people know those guidelines it's probably a good idea for you to look for those yeah, I think I think if you're writing, if you're doing any sort of personal writing, um, which this sounds to me like personal writing. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think it's probably an editorial or an opinion piece. It's just sort of a short personal essay mm -hmm. is what it sounds like. Um, and so I think every every you'll have submission guidelines everywhere, but it won't be anything like an a piece of academic writing or research writing where you have to go through the peer review. And you might get editorial feedback, but more than likely for a piece like this, they'll just sort of accept it and they may ask for edits or not. But look at submission guidelines for whatever whatever publication you want to work with. I want to put a disclaimer up that I've never actually published anything. I have been part of publications um, and I've had the pleasure of listening to my PIs complain about publication. <laughs> so that's where most of this explanation is coming mm -hmm. from. I just don't want anyone to think I'm an expert on academic publishing. How many times do I have to stay on the show that uh, facts are not what we do? <laughs> <laughs> Just, Which is ironic for a medical school podcast, well, but whatever. You know, yeah. <laughs> Scribble some words and paper has another question. Uh, here we go. I'd like to hear your thoughts regarding how much your life outside of medicine has been impacting your specialty choices. While we all talk about wellness and work-life balance. 
I find it is still somewhat taboo to acknowledge there are things you want to do in your life that are incompatible with 80 to 100 hour work weeks. What are your experiences thus far with this? Well, taboo to acknowledge. Taboo. <laughs> taboo. It's the best voice Tra I've ever translation, chosen. Translation, that's taboo to acknowledge, yes. not taboo to acknowledge. <laughs> taboo to acknowledge. Uh, Mackenzie, you might be closest to this at the moment um, because you are an M, as I said, an M3, sort of. And I'm 2.5. And 2.5. Um, and you have uh, one child yes. and one child on the way. Yes. And uh, you plan on having another child, perhaps. Perhaps. Should I not say that? I don't know. I can cut that out. There's a lot of expectation there. Well. <laughs> a lot of pressure. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, but you're starting a family now. That is correct. Uh, is the point. Mm -hmm. What have you been thinking about? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of came into medical school, um, type A, high achiever, loved spending hours and hours and hours here. I was here till 11 quite frequently, 12, if not later. Um, I enjoyed spending 80 hours a week doing medicine. Um, and so thought um, it doesn't really matter what specialty I go into because I love, you know, I'll love whatever because I love spending that many hours. Um, and then when my husband and I started having a family, and um, having a kid at home has really changed my perspective on what's important in my life and where my priorities fall. And I have had to spend a lot more time um, thinking to myself and exploring within the different fields of um, this idea of work-life balance and trying to determine the specialty I want to go into based off of both what I will love and enjoy and what will give me the opportunity to spend time with those I love at home. Because I realized that even if I love what I do, if I'm doing it 100 hours a week, heck, if I'm doing it more than 60 hours a week for the rest of my life, I'm not going to enjoy it for more than maybe a year before you just start to burn out. And that's actually part of the reason I'm doing this pathology externship, because it is giving me the opportunity to spend more than just a six week rotation um, in a specialty um, so that I can really get an idea of whether or not it's something I would like to do for the rest of my life and how it will allow me to spend time with my family. Um, it's been good so far. It's been a good year. But I guess my recommendation for anybody out there um, that's kind of contemplating how to choose a specialty based off of work-life balance is to make sure that even while in, in your residency or in medical school or your clinicals, that you're still doing what you enjoy. And if your rotation doesn't allow you the time to do what you really enjoy or spend time with those that's really important to you, that that may be a good idea to maybe reconsider that specialty because I think it's really important to continue doing what you love, even while on those hard specialties. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying, you know, if you're working, you know, a ton of time on a particular rotation and you find that to be incompatible with what you uh, like to do outside of work, then that's a clue that that might that profession might be similar as you go on. That's is I, that what you're saying? I agree, and I yeah. think it's also really important to look at what the residents are doing with their lives. Are they hanging out outside of work? Are they do they have families? Do they have hobbies, or do they just seem tired and like they're working their butts off and that they're burning out? And I think actually this this spending this time um, in the externship has given me more of a view as to what burnout might look like. Um, and I don't think we otherwise get a great view of that in med school because you don't spend more than six weeks on a rotation before you get to change and do something different. Um, 
and I think it's a discussion that people should be having even more than we are. Um, one of my friends on Facebook just posted an article recently about um, physician suicide again and um, the comment that we are, what was the, the stat? It was something crazy, like more physicians every year are committing suicide than veterans mm. are committing suicide. And it's something like two full medical school classes um, to graduate has to replace the number of physicians we lose to suicide every year. And that's, you know, quite a bit of that is related to burnout um, and that related to mental health wellness. Um, and I think ultimately choosing something that you love as well as something that gives you a good life balance is going to help prevent um, burnout and potentially mental health illnesses later down the line. Mm-hmm. And so I want to, I also want to jump in and say, and I don't, I want to know your thoughts on this of, I find at least for myself, that there's a a certain difference between sort of being tired or feeling like, you know, I don't want to come into work today versus burning out because I've kind of recently gone through a pretty big like phase of burnout just while I've been in medical school. And then like kind of working out of that was like, oh, yeah, that was not just like I hit a rut. That was like I was just not you know, motivated at all. So you I think were not into it for yeah, a while. But like while I was like kind of burning out, I didn't really notice it. I thought it was just like, oh man, I'm just getting like tired or bored or something. And then, you know, now after kind of working my way out of it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what was going on. So I think it's hard to tell sometimes because I feel like being like physicians work long hours, especially if you go into the really hard specialties. So sometimes I feel like it's hard to tell the difference between, well, am I just like having a bad week or am I starting to like burn out and get into like kind of a danger zone? So... Yeah, I, burnout can be difficult to notice from the inside. And I think our culture is so terrible. And like, even as an M2 who like, I just have to take tests. I don't actually have any patients that I'm responsible for. It's like, so I originally started like taking a pottery class and like people were like, what are you doing with your life? Like you're doing something that's not school. And I'm like, yes, I am because I need to you feel like be purposeful a about that. Yeah. And so I think like part of that makes it harder to recognize it because it's like any admission of weakness is like, sometimes I feel like I'm like pounced upon when I'm like, you know what though? Here's the thing. People listen to me. Are you listening? Good. Doing stuff outside of medical school is not a sign of weakness. I don't understand. It's a sign of strength. Mm -hmm. If you can do those things that make you happy and do med school, doesn't that mean that you're a strong person? You're actually doing more. Well, sometimes it's hard because you feel like, and I actually had this, you sometimes feel like, oh, you're sacrificing study time and you're sacrificing like potentially higher scores for, which is this, I I want to put a preface on this and say that this is stupid, but this is kind of what it is. It is a thing. How you feel where it's like, if you're doing stuff and not working and not studying, then, oh, you're not advancing your career and people. And what's scary is that then you feel like, oh, people are passing me. People are like doing more than I'm doing and people are going to do better in their careers. And you kind of get that paranoia that tells, you no, the solution to feeling burned out by work is to work more. And yeah. it's really easy to logic yourself into that. There is, it is easy, but I think there aren't there studies that show that really the people that are actually doing more outside of just studying in general are typically also the students that are doing better. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. More diverse. I mean, when I, when I like started letting myself do that, I mean, outside of this one test we took today, it's not a good morning for the test test that shall not be spoken of more on this (laughs) outside of that yeah like it was last spring i was like 
screw it. I need to be happy. And so I started being happy. And then it was like, suddenly I went from like barely passing to like above average. Hmm. Like, what a wild hmm. idea. Funny that taking care of yourself leads to good things. Well, who would have thought? And when you look at scores overall, I feel like, you know, if it takes you 10 hours of studying, say, to get to an 80 percent, then it's probably going to take you 10 hours more to get to a 90 percent. And then it's going to take you 10 hours more to get to like a 92 percent. Like the amount of studying you have to do to increase just a little tiny bit, it's more and more and more and more. This is why really sacrificing a few hours is probably not going to affect your grade at all. This is why when uh, when y'all are like, oh, I can't be on the podcast today because I have a test at one. I'm like, is that hour gonna? Okay, that hour gonna? I mean, okay, that, that's it's not the hour though. of studying. Yeah. It's that like stressed five minutes you have to get to the test, and maybe your computer doesn't work, and then you, it's, it's. <laughs> yeah. okay, I need to go into the test feeling calm, and if I was running there from here, I would not be calm. That's fair. Enough. Plus, we wouldn't be fun to have on the podcast because we'd be stressing, and we wouldn't produce good audio. You guys are always fun to have on the podcast. It doesn't matter whether you're stressed out or not. You're lovely. Um, so actually, yeah, when so I, wrong. actually, after, you know, that was one of my concerns after having my baby um, in December, I was worried, you know, too, that my like my grades were just going to crash and that I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> and then I ended up like so I, I probably told the story where I, I took an exam while in labor. Yeah, yeah. Did fine. Yeah. Took a quiz right after. Did well. Yeah. Took an exam like the next week. Like I like high honored it. You proved you're a badass. Jesus. <laughs> Is that not the most then, medical student thing you've ever. I took an exam while having a baby. <laughs> it was okay. I took my mind off of it. I operated it was just, on it was my a, it was own. It was a mass append- exam. Okay. It was mass. Oh, oh okay. That's fine. That's I operated fine. on my appendix while I was doing <laughs> a shelf exam. But actually, like even with clinicals, um, like the amount of time I put into studying was probably significantly less than what I maybe would have um, had I not had an infant at home. But I think the quality of studying that I did was much higher because I used the time I had very intentionally in my grades. I was going to say the word intentional is important. You know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, I mean, people, you know, I noticed that even from my minimal experience with doing well in college, (laughs) um, (laughs) Uh, you know, I did better when I had a job, for instance, than I did when I was just, you know, Mm -hmm. screwing around. (laughs) Um, so, you know, you, you, your work spreads out to fill the time that you have. If you give yourself less time, you have to be more intentional. You have to be more planned. You have to, you know, to, you have to put it together. And I guess to bring it back to the listener question, I was thinking that if you are, if you want to go into the only thing that's coming to my mind is like emergency med, because I feel like that's probably the most time consuming and unpredictable. Are, are actually, actually, it is the left less. I think oh, seriously, yeah. emergency medicine physicians work on average, like 35 to five, 45 hours a week. Dude, it's shift it's, work. You are yeah. on or you're I mean, off. that's fair. And but, so you have, I think you have more control in emergency because it's like, but it also is the highest burnout. Yeah. 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 I, it's, it's high pressure. It's high pressure. And it also, um, from what I've gathered from physicians I've talked to in emergency medicine, sometimes you can burn out just based off of the populations of patients you're seeing. Mm-hmm. You tend oh, to see yeah. patients that are disenfranchised and, and sometimes helpless. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. You do tend to see, at least here in Iowa City, you see a lot of people that are coming in for alcohol intoxication that are you know, brought in by police. You, come, you see people who have are in mental health crises and you have nowhere to place them because our psych units are full. Um, And you see all of these patients amidst your pulmonary embolism, your myocardial infarctions, your strokes, your car accidents. Um, 
And so trying to figure out how to triage these patients and yet still serve all of them um, becomes overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And over the course of years, people start to burn out when you have that all the time. Now, for, from what I gather, your residency hours are actually significantly less and then employment hours are significantly less than other specialties. Hours that you work the most, I want to say, I think it's vascular surgery, um, as even as an attending is where you're still pushing 80 hours a week, even after residency, if you choose that. Um, private practice tends to have more hours because you have more responsibility if you want to continue making your million a year. <laughs> Specialties well, that are lower. Probably more likely to be on call in a specialty like that. Yeah. Or in a, in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> specialties with better hours. Primary care. Um, like rural physicians tend to have better hours. Pathology tends to have very good hours, very good life balance. Um, I've met radiology. some very happy pathologists in my time. Yeah. Pathologists are the best. Pathologists and radiologists are just always really fun to have lectures from because they always seem so happy. <laughs> the one radiology yeah. lecture where it was like they took x-rays of candies. This happened. Oh, we I love a, this. A radiology lecture where they had like took x-rays of different candies and then you had to like guess which candy it was. Oh, that sounds like a fun game that we can't play on a on an audio podcast. There was one where it was like, I think it was also, apparently radiology just does this. They have like every um, couple months or so, they'll have this where they take x-rays or images of like six mundane objects and then send around a poll to be like, guess what it is? He showed us one that was just insanely complicated. Everyone's like, what is that? It looks like some sci-fi machine. It was a coffee maker. It was insane. <laughs> I, there's a 2019 BMJ Systematic review of 75 studies of 882,000 people looked at the extent of influence of different factors on specialty choice. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any surprises here. Um, <laughs> academic interest was highest, um, had the highest influence. Controllable lifestyle or flexible work schedule was second. Um, and I would say workload, looking at this graph, workload or working hours, that was about I don't know, fourth or fifth. I would say fifth. So, you know, and then there were things like, you know, higher than that were like patient service orientation, which I take to mean the what? kind, the population, the patient population. Yeah, and, or if you have patient contact or not. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the influence of medic, of teachers and mentors and then the career <laughs> opportunities involved. And income actually was, it looks like around fifth or sixth yeah. um, on this list of nine things. People who I talk to are generally like, I won't... I, at least in my experience, or and maybe this is idealistic, but most people will say, you know, I would like to go into a specialty that pays me really well. But also, if you're getting paid well for a job you hate, like for I, I'm just going to take my example. And I want to say no offense to any dermatologist, but I would hate being a dermatologist. And so it's like, I don't think you could honestly pay me enough. Well, OK, there's probably a number, but it's very high um, to go into dermatology. Like, I just no, I don't want it. See, yeah. I want I want one of these polls where rather than just like the ability to make a high salary, it's like if like financial security and like ability to pay off loans in a reasonable amount of time, because I very, very rarely would talk to someone who's like, yeah, I want to do this field because it's high paying. But I would say that occasionally. I almost wonder if people would admit to that. Well, they probably this, right? see they probably wouldn't. But I have talked to people who are like, uh, I'm a little nervous about rural primary care because like I don't know, you know. And not a lot, not a lot. It's happened only a couple of times where I wonder if like. And I feel like I think we had a, I don't, you guys probably haven't had this lecture yet, um, but you'll have someone, I think in one of your mass lectures that um, 
hopefully they do that again this year, where they have a rural physician come and speak. And I think that's it's kind of it's a bit of a myth that rural physicians don't make a comfortable salary. I think he said um, he was making, you know, low, like upper 100 to 200 grand a year as a rural family practice physician. And plus, think about where you're living. You've got cost much lower so cost low. of living. Mm-hmm. Transportation um, costs. Right. Parking costs. I mean, things like that. That I mean, parking here if for a physician can be over a grand a year. That's not something people consider. Child care mm-hmm. costs are probably going to be lower. Much, much lower. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and with that, you know, comes with things like, you know, a reduced selection of different services or activities or things like that. And those are all important things to consider. But if you're talking strictly about, you know, the factors that contribute to uh, to your income or things like that, then yeah. rural could be the way to go. But it doesn't. But the argument against that is that rural physicians work longer hours. Yeah. Because they're often the only they may be the only physician, you know, in that area. And I think that's occasionally true if you're in a really, really tiny town. But I come from a town of um, my town is like 7000 where I grew up, which is not large, obviously, by any means. And we have just family care practice physicians. There's like 15, which Mm -hmm. is quite a high number same and so like i think people think of like you know that and it is still considered rural medicine um because you're like an hour plus away from any large um, medical facility and with facilities closing actually that that becomes even more of a pressure yeah mm -hmm. so i think there is in some i guess you probably consider that more of a medium small hospital um and from the physicians that i know back home their work-life balance seems pretty great they do have to cover, like, the, they take turns covering the ED on the weekends. But some people, for some, that might be an attractive point of, like, okay, I don't want to go into emergency medicine, but I can still see some stuff, you know, occasionally in the ED and you get farming accidents and um, things like that that still come in. So you still do see quite a diversity of, med- of medicine. So I have this question. If you're going into a specialty, like, say you want to go into something like that where you will be working long hours, but this is like your passion and you want to do it. How would you like what advice would you give to someone who wants to go into a specialty where they work long hours, but then maybe also wants to like have a family and have a life like part time is still an mm-hmm. option, especially if you're doing an academic medicine. Yeah, here. I think academic medicine, at least from what like the people I've talked to, like. So I think I want to do like ICU stuff, pick you or NICU. And I know a lot of that is like you you work your week on service that so your hours are terrible. And then you have the three other weeks of the month where you have like a more uh, yeah. normal schedule. Yeah. Or even sometimes it's like even more chill than that. It's like you have some tasks you have to get done during those three weeks. But no one's like no one knows when you come in and leave. And so it's. Mm-hmm. Like you have your your responsibilities, but like if you needed to work from home or you need to stay home with your sick kid, that's like from what I understand, fairly possible. Yeah, I think to a certain extent going in, like my understanding is that going into those specialties, you generally go into it with the knowledge that you're going to have to make some personal life sacrifices. So it's like it just attracts the kind of people who are willing to balance. That. And I think what you said before about intentionality is a big thing where it's like when you are not working. You need to be like intentionally spending time with people and intentionally like not thinking about work. And like if you're working a specialty with long hours, you can't bring it home or else you'll just crash. So uh, scribble some words and paper. Uh, good luck with your your uh, your choices. Uh, Excellent yeah. suggestion for the vocoder. Yeah. Oh, uh, MS4. He said he was an MS4, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Which means I'm hoping you've chosen your sure. special. <laughs> 
So in uh, other words, everything we've said here is may not, not apply to you. you. Yeah, but know. like if you go into something like internal medicine, like your your possibilities are still extremely broad. That's, That's true. Actually, for almost all. That's true. All residencies. And a yeah. lot of yeah. the yeah, like you're gonna work comparatively long hours during residency and then after you're done with your residency that's when you start to get into those more granular choices right about what you can't what you want to do yep um and some you know some maybe if you're already not looking forward to the long hours maybe don't choose a residency that's like seven years long go for the three years and neurosurgery <clears throat> totally totally cool to Radiology. make those decisions okay am i the only one when we talk about these like oh when you're a resident like then you like tangled when will my life begin, begin. Yes, thank you okay that's all i think about every single time i did not it's not what I... 7 a.m the usual morning line <laughs> i don't know the words well enough I need... we sang in a girl scout camp copyright strike <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, well, yes, as uh, I say, we're going to get sued by Disney. That's fine. I think I should consider it. this free advertising. Med students that's, love Disney movies. You think movies. that's how it works? That's not but, how it works. No, but it should be how it works. It yeah. should be. And if you want to take that up with the Copyright Act, then no, I have enough. Me. I have enough like moral issues with the world. I think I'm going to let this one slide. But wow. you know, the sad thing is that I was thinking about when we say like, "Oh, well, you you just get to residency, and then you'll decide later." Sometimes it just feels like. Are we ever going to actually decide what we're going to do with our life? Do I actually ever grow up and become like, yes, I am a, I am Dr. Walhoff and this is my specialty and this is my job. I'm going to be like 43 and be like, what? I'm in my, I'm in my fourth fellowship because I haven't been able to decide what I'm doing yet. One step at a time. I can't see. Probably just like wake up one day and suddenly like, oh, wait, I've, I've been this fellow for or like I've been in this specialty for two years and I didn't notice. So well, you you will notice <laughs> because it's like suddenly it's all on you. So much. Oh, pressure. yeah. It's interesting, though, especially being like in pathology, um, how because pathology and like writing, you know, signing off on things is it's such a huge responsibility and you make one tiny little mistake and like basically the entire patient's prognosis and treatment plan is based on your, you know, resting on your shoulders that even through your entire four-year residency program, you don't sign off anything completely without your attending. And that's not true for like, like wow. an internal medicine resident can put in orders, can order things, you know, can put in orders for medicines or run tests or do things like that fairly independently and then they kind of check in with an attending later as they're kind of going over stuff. But with the with pathology residency, it is very, very tightly. Did not you are watched that. very tightly and nothing goes to the physician, really. In almost every case, nothing will go to the physician before your attending has um, looked over hmm. your interpretation of the results. Uh, okay. I guess that makes sense because you really do need a trained eye to be able to pick things out if you don't know what you're looking for. Or, like, it's hard enough if you do know, like, we just did pathology where we did brain tumors, and it's hard enough to figure out what it is when you know it's got to be one of these four things. Yeah, and not one of these 400 things. Yeah, ex exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's like, I've got a kidney, what do I do with this? <laughs> I feel like the, the pathology eye is something that you develop over time, because I cannot tell you how many path lectures I have had, and the lecture is like, oh, look at all these pathetoid melanocytes, and I am like, sir... If you think I know what a melanocyte is. Sir. 
Let's, let's we, need, we need to back up here. Like, I do not see what you're seeing. I love that we're pathology lecturers. So sometimes just put a picture up and got no labels and be like, look, this yeah. is clearly this and I'm like, disease. Can we, I, need, like, I need a normal reference and like, I need arrows. This looks like a pink tie-dye shirt. I don't even know <laughs> what you're trying to show me. It's like, that's a cell. That's a cell. I don't know. We could go on forever about we this one. We probably could. I, yeah. I can vent about my path lectures. <laughs> that's, not what he asked, that's not what he asked about, but we're using you as an excuse to it's vent fine. about <laughs> It's fine. As a path extern, you have, to, you have to do lectures, don't you? I teach dental students. Dental students. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what's that interesting. like? It's uh, interesting. We were tossed in. So we do the same exact case analysis that you guys did in MOHD3. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Except it's just like they toss us in with like a bunch of dental students and they're like, go based off of these case analysis, teach them, write their exams, give them exams. Oh, you're, um, you're wow. big doings. Yeah. We just finished our first exam. They all did so well. They averaged like a 91. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they have written the exams a bit easy. I hate when you No, say it's because you're an excellent high. teacher. Yeah, we'll go with that. No. So no, it's, it's, I, I really enjoy teaching. I can't tell if I'm doing a good job, but I like listening to myself talk. So it's basically <laughs> what it is for an hour. So. Um, well, that's cool. Um, for years, guys, the NIH funding policies excluded women from serving as research subjects because their monthly hormonal changes made re results less reliable than those of men whose hormone cycle on a daily basis. Uh, since 2015, both the U.S. and Canada have changed those misguided policies to address the marginalization of women in medical research. Uh, so now funding is uh, linked to the presence of both sexes uh, in research. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, so what happens when you want to stay pregnancy or you're not allowed to contraceptives <laughs> or oh you're really not allowed to study contraceptives <laughs> yeah your research proposal gets rejected because you didn't include men among your subjects you're also just not allowed to do studies on pregnant women in general unless they're retrospective oh really uh, well I'm t I mean this this also applies to uh, animal yeah. studies too oh, we don't care about animals <laughs> <laughs> they can, the pregnant animals can get tested on it's becoming clear <laughs> according to an article I read in Aussie.com that uh, gender diversity mandates that require both male and female subjects um, in order to diversify research uh, are actually having the opposite effect for women's health research projects um, because they might get rejected for not including men. Um, I read this article and the big thing, and again, please interrupt me if you think I'm totally off base here. It felt less like this was sort of an inherent policy and more like growing pains where it was like, as soon as you implement this, where it's like, we're biasing towards studies that have, you know, dual genders, that like, you have to extra super justify your controls, because it, it felt like some of these proposals that got rejected are more of like a knee jerk reflex of like, oh, you need to include this as a control. And then it's like, well, that doesn't make sense as a control, which is actually a pretty common thing to see on grant proposals where people will want to see a control that makes no sense. So like, really? Yeah, I mean, as far as my understanding, there are some grants where it's like, oh, you need to include this control and this control. And you're like, well, that doesn't actually make sense, given all the background that I've done, but that my grant reader didn't necessarily do. See, I would just I am not denying that that happens, but I would just think that if we're studying pregnancy that like any <laughs> yeah. Yahoo off the street 
could make that judgment. Well, yeah. My, and my guess is that um, I think for some of this, it's probably almost just like a filtering thing. Like, yeah. you yeah. It, no, we filtered I'm, this out because you only included women without even looking at mm-hmm. what the there's some, study was. There's somebody just, like there's somebody like me. Right. Mm-hmm. Who's sitting in an office somewhere that hasn't even, you know, this study hasn't even reached uh, a reviewer yet or anything like that uh, of the grant. Um, there's somebody like me whose job it is to go, okay, does this meet the check? And he's really kind of, <laughs> they, they might be a lot yeah. more bored than this I am. This is like am. their 200th proposal they've seen yeah. today and they just want to go home. And they're like, there's no men in this study. Yeah. Rejected. Okay, so what, yeah. I, what I need to decide if I need to be angry about this happening is, is the same thing happening to men's health? Because if like, if you can still study your erectile dysfunction and your prostate <laughs> cancer, no problem right now, then it's like, then I'm then I'm real pissed. Yeah, I want women involved in those erectile dysfunction studies. Yeah. And, and, okay. And also, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say, in what capacity, Mackenzie? <laughs> <No. laughs> and say because I think it also depends a little bit on the purpose of the study. Like, for example, if you're talking about obviously efficacy of a female birth control, then yeah, adding men makes no sense. But let's say you're talking about a safety study. Well, it kind of. Is maybe isn't completely off base to say, well, if it's safe to use, it should be safe regardless whoever t- of whoever takes it, which is part of a drug trial. Well, almost so, all drugs will unfortunately end up in our water supply regardless. Mm-hmm. So you Ooh, better make sure yeah. women. That's a good point. And it, it, would also, it would also make sense to study how it interacts with male hormones, even if it's like just to understand how it works more. So like, obviously, this doesn't apply to every study, but at least for some studies, you can see where maybe there's a genuine argument to be made. I think I think there is a genuine argument, but this to me is something like as a woman who has specifically women's health issues that were like dismissed and treated poorly for so long. And then like I had to really fight to get like treatment for it and like had to drive five hours to have surgery, even though I'm at like one of the top gyne programs in the country is in this city. They still couldn't help me. And so like as a woman who's been personally affected by the lack of research in women's health issues to just like see how like our attempt to like help like i mean i I think we're moving in the right direction that we are having like we are taking a look at other studies and like think about like yeah there are some things we definitely have to have both genders it's still just like really disheartening to me to see that like we're still having this issue like even like i just yeah. Uh, unintended consequences are always a big part of um, introducing any change to yeah. regulations or, or rules. Yeah. And, um, and this is what I meant when I said growing pains yeah, yeah. earlier. Yeah. Where I was yeah. like, oops, we accidentally kind of went too far. It's like you overcorrect mm-hmm. when you're trying to like stop yeah. yourself in a swerve. And you suddenly like, I don't, I don't think that people are doing this intentionally, but I'm no. just like in my mind, I'm like, we need to fix this now. Yeah, <laughs> like gang. <laughs> Oh. I think you're right. It'll it'll get fixed. It'll the yeah. pendulum will swing. It will. Yeah. Uh, well, and they and did mention that it, it did get through. They just had to kind of they had to justify, they just had to justify it more. Justify it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which is fine. I mean, like and that, maybe you should have to justify it a little bit every time your control seems a little strange. Yeah, and that's honestly how grant proposals normally go, where it's like you like you write a grant, they send it back with revisions, or it's like okay, you know, resubmit it with these changes, re- changes, and that's how science should work because you need oversight. In order for you know you to make sure you're doing good science, also and Dave, you can go ahead and cut this out if this seems like bad fodder. The comments on this article were I did not. I never read the comments. I know I I shouldn't. I what were the comments? The comments were basically all okay. Do you remember a while back when the Me Too movement was happening 
And we had a bunch of like alpha males being like, oh, this is going to come back to haunt them because now no one's going to want to hire women oh. because they're going to start accusing people. It was pretty much all that of being like, hey, women, it's come back to haunt you. The wheels turned back around or something. And I it was like, I, said, I still think we've made was, some honestly. progress. Though. Yeah. Like, guys, this was like. <laughs> I was like, I don't give a shit. We kicked your asses. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was very much. And it was just like, listen. Guys, we just want our health care. We're not trying to step on you. Okay, please, yeah. just leave us alone. <laughs> Chill out. Uh, you might want right. to cut that out. No, I don't know. I like yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> guys, medical school is expensive. <laughs> with an average cost of $244,000, according to the AAMC, which is, is why really some necessary? students will sweep... <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Just say the number. <laughs> Which is why some students will seek ways of making money that are efficient and won't distract from their studies, perhaps involving something they're doing anyways, like sperm donation. I thought you were going to say like stripping or something. <laughs> oh, God. Which is something they're doing There's anyway. There's something they're doing anyway. <laughs> that was the case for Dr. Bryce Cleary, who is medical oh, school, uh, Oregon Health and Science University in 1989, solicited its medical students for donors. Uh, it seemed like a good idea. He got a little money in exchange for his donation, uh, would be used to conceive five babies, oh. all of whom would be on the East coast, opposite coast. And the rest of the sperm would be used for research. Now he finds out through interest through ancestry.com that he's the father of 17 children, all of them in the Oregon and the Pacific in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. Uh, surprise. Uh, <laughs> OHSU hasn't uh, commented because patient privacy, um, except to say that it treats any allegation of misconduct with the gravity it deserves. Which, by the way, is is that a backhand way of saying this particular allegation is not going to be treated with any gravity? I'm well. I, I mean, it just you, sounds like one of those like. I think it yeah, was we'll just, treat like, we this with the gravity it deserves. Well, like if you sign a contract that says like this is going to be used for this, and then you find out that they broke the contract. That I mean, I actually don't know how sperm donation works for obvious reasons, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I always thought of it as a rather simple process. But, <laughs> I, I mean, say, you know, <laughs> you know what? I'm just gonna take myself off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's like if there was a contract signed and there was breach of contract, I feel like that should be taken pretty seriously regardless. Yeah. yeah this reminds, Something went wrong. Something yeah. clearly went wrong. Isn't there wrong. a TV show right now that's starting to come out that there was a couple years ago, something came out about someone who had donated sperm and they didn't have a contract or anything like that. Well, so it wasn't a, a breach. where there's like 500 kids. There's, so there's a t new TV show coming out called Almost Family, I think is what it's called. And it's based off of this this story about this guy yeah. that had donated tons of sperm and fathered just tons of children. And so now through means like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, um, all the some of the DNA sequencing stuff, people are finding out all kinds how, of stuff. How well and how how related you are and yeah. how easy it could be to actually be related to someone you didn't really realize you were related right. to. Right, like you could be, mm -hmm. you could find out that your one of your parents had a had an affair. Well, I guess your father I think that could, had an affair. Um, well, and the major concern would be, especially maybe not quite yet on this generation, but as the generation continues, fathering that many children in an area where maybe your, your children oh. could meet and marry yeah. could infer... Yeah. Um, oh. And that's in different DNA. Right. Yeah, and, and that's the specific genetic, the genetic, genetic complications mm -hmm. of And that's among the that problems. Yeah, and that's among the problems that um this group of kids now adults I guess more or less um this group of people now face because they all live in the same geographical area. Mm -hmm. Um and they will have kids. 
and their kids could meet. I mean, it, it you know, it's a re- it's a it's a real problem. Yeah. Well, th- OK, this happens even without sperm donation, sort of. I I know a guy who accidentally went on a date or two with his third cousin and then he like told his mom and she was like, that's your cousin. <laughs> so this is it's a real problem already. <laughs> oh, I mean, like third cousin third cousin's at that point, removed. it's like, you know, yeah, I know. but it's like, I, I, okay. so, I still don't think I'd want it. I mean, you would. I don't think I'd seek them out. But if I was like, oops, I'm in love. <laughs> I know. Like, well, and there is some studies, isn't there, that show that, you know, in general, if you share some DNA, you just just you tend to be more alike. So you, the odds that you're going to be similarly involved and in, with, you know, similar interests. So you may end up doing similar activities or oh, going the, to similar oh, places. Yeah. So the odds of you meeting are higher, are higher. They've even talked about that with like children that were adopted yeah. and then separated i think i read again. something like uh, people who are more genetically close to you smell better to you or something I think I've like heard that, that. Yeah. well i know i thought it was something that i thought it, there was some weird i don't think it was probably a legit study but something about those that you would be genetically like fit better with yeah. are supposed to smell better oh, is that it? i okay. thought it was something that like uh, that your makes... odds of like not having weird dna or weird genetic I like chromosomal what, stuff. I like what you just better. said better than what I said. <laughs> so, I mean, the other ones would be like, mm, my sister smells good. <laughs> <laughs> We're very close in DNA. <laughs> All this is why Dr. Cleary and his son and lawyer, James Cleary, are suing OHSU for $525 million, which makes this the world's most complicated way to pay for medical school <laughs> that I've ever heard of. So I'm curious, is he also upset about like the... Not just that the there were children that came out of this, but also that his like his body wasn't used the way. He, yeah, I mean, he he yeah. is. He's also upset that um you know that that he is identifiable um as a a parent um uh, of of these kids. Some of them have you know sought him out. Um, it's a little awkward. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, but that's I agree weird. with what you're saying too. Like, yeah. if I were to donate tissue. For research and I specified how I wanted it to be used I'd expect it be used in a very specific way yeah. I mean yes. you talk about the HeLa cell line oh, that's I think exactly it's kind of like I, yeah. a similar idea well not to that extent like obviously but, that was much more drastic but again it's you got to be careful about this stuff it's, it's it has yeah, like, it has implications far-reaching implications that you might not initially consider yeah mm-hmm. I mean yeah maybe to one person it just seems like some cells but that is it's someone's DNA yeah. it's someone's very you know genetic imprint but then, like, even today when you, like, donate tissue to research, like, let's say that, like, they take your, you know, cancer biopsy and use it for research, you have no control over that. Like, I, now they do an informed consent piece, but let's say, like, you know, yeah. someone takes your tissue and invents a patent on it. You have no claim over do you that. Have it's not to yours anymore. consent for them to research your tissue? Or can I, they? I think, I yeah. Anything... I think anymore they have to. I think in the past it was a, okay. In the past they problem. didn't, but, like, I think anymore they have to tell you if they're going to, like, take your tissue and use it for research. I don't know about that. I, do they not? I was told, no, that anything that gets removed from your body for the purpose of, like, a medical test, they can do whatever they want I think I think that might be true in the sense that as long as you're identity is completely separated and that nothing would be able to trace you back to it yeah if it's something like we're going to use this to test different stains and for different mutations and things like that i think they might be able to use it because then because like even in path there's sometimes we'll do an extra stain just because we're curious and we'll do a no charge 
Where I guess that technically right. would be, so we aren't charging well, the patient. Yeah, but that's not really research. But then but it's, it's, you do record and it could be used potentially if you, someone, you know, some you do future a chart resident or, yeah. does oh, a retrospective sure. study of like how many of these that we did stains on. I mean, and yeah. like your identity would never be obviously included at that. Be yeah. like, oh yeah, yeah, we had 43, you know, breast cancer cases that stained this way. It's not like they're reaching out to all those 43 oh, yeah, biopsies anymore just to ask if they could use that. Yeah, that's it's like probably just, implicated. It's like a weird gray area that I wasn't really sh- didn't know, really know existed. And I don't know all the details behind it too. I don't know if what I'm saying is accurate or yeah. not. And I wonder if it's also like you know, for example, I feel like if you're gonna culture cells, I feel like I've heard of informed consent being used for that. Where like if you're gonna like people will take cells, culture them, and then sell them. Where that it's like I the think person is who, true. Yeah. That yeah, I think you like, do have to because yeah, because the person who donates that tissue is not then entitled to like a share of the profits from that cell. Yeah. Line. We recently had a leukemia patient that I think they were talking about maybe using the cells to culture. And then they were talking about using, having to do informed consent um, yeah. paperwork. So I guess it depends on what specifically you're doing. And it's it's interesting because it's like the line, like how did we decide where that line was? And the line changes. People got together in a conference room and drew it. <laughs> well, and currently, you know, our DNA, like when you your DNA is sequenced like by any commercial company, currently it's under protection, mm-hmm. but... What if that protection were to be removed or like I know the government has very specific um, protections currently, genetic protection type things currently, but all it would take would that to lapse and not you know become resigned and then life insurance can get yeah. a hold of it. And then yeah, it's it's like, like, I, I would be super interested to sequence my DNA, but I'm too afraid because I don't trust. Like I don't want to know that. because I like well, like we, so again in pathology, we do a lot of Huntington's yeah. um, oh, stuff. Oh. But we are the way we report it out is so incredibly complicated. We get the test. We can read the test. We will write it up on a Word document that we will then give to the genetic counselor that the genetic counselor can tell them their results. They can then go apply for or they have the option and then they need to go apply for like life insurance and things like that before they find out their test. Once they've found out their test, the genetic counselor then tells us that we can then put it in Epic. And until that, I mean, it can go on for, for years and years after we've run the test. Mm-hmm. before we get the word back from genetic counseling that we can put in the system. Weird. Yeah. It's very complicated. Well, I mean, I think any incurable disease is always met with that kind of scrutiny. Like, like I, that's the only one that's that technical that we deal with. Oh, really? Hmm. Well, because I think, I, I know like, that, like AIDS diagnosis at the VA, you also can't like necessarily put in you just can't record. Can't you at the VA? Because here you can. I haven't done the uh, full training yet, but they mentioned something like that in our we online just can't. training. We just oh, can't no, put it in You can put chart. it in their medical record, but you can't send it to a different provider without right. permission. It needs like extra permission in order to disclose. But that's like anytime, you've si- yeah. anytime you okay. sign something to send your medical record, you have to get explicit permission for HIV and mental health and substance abuse. And technically you're supposed to get explicit permission before you even run the test yeah. for right. some of those. I-, I guess Huntington's is also bad because it's one of those things that's really horrible, has no cure. And is also genetic and transmissible. I think that like the fact that it's transmissible to a kid you probably have already had is, I think, the worst part. Mm. Yeah. Well, then last month, the 2019 Ig Nobel Prizes were announced, which means that it's long past time for me to put on my fake medical educator hat and give you a pop quiz. Ooh, this medical educator hat is pink. It's also very tall. It's a very tall, pink top hat that says medical educator. When I was uh, imagining my medical educator hat, I was trying to 
was trying to put it a shape to it. And I thought of like, okay, was it a cowboy hat? Is it a, is it a Pope's mitre? What is it? It'd be really <laughs> funny to see you in like a surgeon's cap. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, like the you one that, that. Yeah. Bring oh, it on. God. I want to try on some different caps. Like the one with the flames on it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just the, a funny uh, bouffant. Yeah. Yes. The medicine prize was awarded to Silvano Gallus et al. Is that how you say that? Yep, yeah, at all, at all. Uh, for their work on the protection from cancer associated with consumption of what? Uh, here are your choices. Pizza, donuts, french fries, or spaghetti and meatballs. Of which I think I've eaten all in the past, Ooh. like, weeks. <laughs> <laughs> which, which one was, uh, which one uh, uh, possibly protects against cancer? Just all cancer. Donuts. Just cancer Just as cancer an umbrella term. Um, yeah. I think oh, so. Okay. That's like yeah. a, like I think they say vitamin D is also another one that's like, but like it's not oh, like oh, healthy believe, amounts of vitamin D. I believe vitamin D. I just don't know that I believe what was it? French fries. French fries. Okay. French fries. I'm gonna, donuts. Go with, I'm gonna go with actually it's probably like spaghetti and meatballs. Can you repeat the choices? Yeah. Pizza, pizza. donuts, French fries, and spaghetti and meatballs. I'm gonna, gonna go, go. I'm gonna go with pizza. Just hoping. I'm gonna okay. go with donuts. I'm gonna go with spaghetti and meatballs. Everything else seems like too diverse. Mm, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. The answer is pizza. Yeah. yeah. Really? I had pizza yes. yesterday and but, survived forever. But it was only studied in Italy. And it's probably <laughs> and your chances of dying of heart disease are like skyrocketed. So you probably just die too early where you can't get cancer. The research uh. entitled Does Pizza Protect Against Cancer found that pizza eating is a favorable indicator of risk for digestive tract neoplasms uh, oh, and others. Wait, so it's, so it's, it's like GI it not just all cancer. <laughs> there were other cancers studied, and I think they were I don't I couldn't I couldn't understand what I was reading. <laughs> I don't think it applies to Little Caesars. That's all I know. Aw. Right? Nothing so nothing healthy applies to Little go Caesars. Go to Italy is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, you got to go to Italy. Yeah. All right, everybody. Let's go to the airport. Let's take a trip. The Medical Education Prize was given to Karen Pryor and Teresa McKeon for their study on one approach to teach simple surgical skills, locking the locking sliding knot, um as well as uh what was it? Low angle drilling. Uh, after presenting a demonstration on the task, which method of instruction was best at teaching their PGY-1, M1, and M2 subjects? The locking, sliding knot. Was it, uh, let's see, researchers gave them treats when a step was completed correctly. Researchers left the room when a step was completed incorrectly. Researchers used dog training clickers when a step was completed correctly. Researchers lightly tapped them on the bum when a step was completed incorrectly. <laughs> Which <laughs> they brought in a bunch of football coaches to judge his car how to be like, good work, bud. I really, really, I think it could be the dog clicker thing, honestly. I, I, I was going to say either the dog clicker or treats. the treats. I was going to say treats. I think treats would work for me, just personally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it makes sense. It's classical conditioning to be like, I oh, am, if I do it right, I get highly motivated. I don't know. Food. I think it could be the clickers because I think it's just like, you know, isn't that like why like clapping or getting a handshake or Ooh, smile? Like it's yeah. all kind of similar, right? That's like, interesting. I never thought of it. that. Maybe. Isn't that kind of what That's it is? A good point. Just by saying Maybe. good job. It's You're the blowing same thing. my mind. Every time somebody claps or shakes my hand, I'm being operantly conditioned a little bit. If I think for saying good work, yeah. Because it, do, I, you know, I didn't think about it. Because it does feel really. I'm good. very but naive. Well, like, I guess this just came to my mind because I was watching the Great British Bake Off last night, yeah, and you know, girl. Paul gives gives a handshake, and like everybody just freaks out because it's <laughs> such a good feeling to get a handshake from Paul. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the 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 answer uh Mackenzie was clickers. Seriously. Uh they used a clicker oh. to indicate when a step was completed correctly. The study found that while clicker training led to longer first knot completion times, um for instance, the accuracy and form of the resulting knot was superior uh for those who learned for uh was superior 
from those who learned by demonstration. I'm totally going to get sense? a clicker oh, to start so training my kid. <laughs> was it so was it like it wasn't like do it and then if you do it correctly No, the steps. They had to yeah. they had to, you know, they they had a script with um each individual, you know, step and then if they did it right for each step they would give them a click. So actually in a way it's almost like they did a trial and error basis where it was kind of like okay, this means this. Well, they no, got instruction first. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. They, they, got in, they got similar instruction first. And then the control was, okay, well, now you got to, you know, you okay. got to do it. Mm -hmm. I think they, yeah, they got. So they, they got had a demonstration. Didn't demonstration yeah. training, oh, okay, basically. Okay. It's uh, probably easier and quicker, too, than just saying, oh, wait, stop. You're not doing that right. Or you are doing that right. Just keep going by just going. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it also, like, it forces you to sort of, like, figure out how to do it right, which I bet helps you internalize the information okay, but as I well. I think giving me a cookie would accomplish the same thing. All right. <laughs> yeah, but you get a lot of cookies. You just get full. Okay, give, me like a, <laughs> give me a fourth of a cookie. I'm just imagine like a bite or just like some Cheetos, like shoving Cheetos in your mouth. Like you it right. I'm just imagining the, the this picture in my head of, like, oh, good job. Here's a little... I'm picturing the instructor at the front of the room holding the M&M's and then like they see someone it's like oh good girl and throwing it across the room <laughs> who's a good surgeon now. who's a good surgeon see we are laughing but I think this would really work for all right you. okay I but like well, then you, I like, think you know what your what your uh, research should be can we just take it aside for a minute and keep talking about that email that we keep getting about wanting to like hook us up to like brain oh, stimulation the brain. Yeah, oh my gosh, and then you have to yeah. do fake eye surgery oh are you getting this email? Okay, yeah. so for You're our listeners, yeah, I think you've been forward. I think um, Jaden sent it to you. Jaden, like, yeah, mentioned it to you in one of your comments about. Wow. Yeah. yeah, you so said you little... wanted your brain to be shocked so you would stop forgetting. Oh, things. that's right. That's and right. then trying to recruit us, and we're all like, "Are you kidding me? This is okay. this brain is the only thing yeah, that's going to make got, me money someday. It's clearly not my face." Can, can I explain for our <laughs> listeners? For our listeners, uh, we get a lot of emails asking us to participate in studies, and this one is from I believe is it like can, what a, like a you can okay, but you can opt out of most of the emails, which I did, but I still get this one. Like yeah. it's very specific to med students. Yeah, and so they're basically saying, okay, we want to come train you on this icy like eye surgery thing, and half of you we're going to give sham brain uh, like stimulation, stimulation meaning like we're going to stick electrodes on your brain and shock it. And so half of you are going to get sham, half of you are going to get real, and then we're going to see how well you do. And the incentive, quote unquote, is that like, oh, you get to learn this like eye training tool. They're not even offering money. No, no they're just like, learn just how to operate on eyeballs. Not even a $5 job Children. gift card, which is how they get me to do most other things. I want to do this. What do I have to lose? I mean, <laughs> this up here, this is like a haunted house. <laughs> All right, next one. The Anatomy Prize was awarded to French researchers for their work studying the thermal asymmetry of what? Uh, the buttocks of Clydesdale horses, Aww. the nipples of female purebred Labrador retrievers, the hallexes of Colorado and Massachusetts middle schoolers. That's their big toe, I understand. Um, and the scrotum in naked and clothed French postmen and bus drivers. I'm going to go with C just because you had to look up hallexes. No. I'm going to go with C. Oh, it's not C. I, he said, I, oh. I, I was just like, oh. I was going to go with C just because that at least sounds like science for Colorado and Massachusetts with elevation. Oh, okay. And then like thermoregulation, asymmetry. All right. All right. All right. All right. What do you think, uh, Abby? I, I'm just going to go with the crowd on this one. Otherwise, I really want it to be horse butts. <laughs> I no. want it to be Labrador nipples. You're all wrong. It's the huh? scrotum and naked and no. French postman and bus drivers. I really wanted it. I really wanted that to be the least. <laughs> Dear, is there like a benefit to the world that we know this now? Like the study sought to address contradictory reports. The temperatures were similar for both sides. 
uh, and others that said temps are higher on the okay. left side. No, that actually oh, makes is sense. It, so it's it. like it's people that drive saying that like, OK, the side closer to the door would get significantly cooler, <laughs> which could this affect is, sperm production. That's okay, probably so what they're looking at. OK, they're to the door. Right. These are, they're As a former bus driver. <laughs> that's probably what they're looking at. Though. I could see yeah. it. I could see so, it. It's probably some study talking I about think, yeah, sperm production. Well, they, you have to cool off your yeah, scrotum. Like your scrotum has to be a very specific yeah. temperature in order to get sperm production. Yeah, there's so that, that one vascular plexus that helps out with this. And that's also why the cremaster muscle is so that if you're too yeah. cold, you're they could like shrink them back up. What is this muscle? <laughs> what is this muscle called? Cremaster. cremaster. What is it? Cremaster. Okay. And it's called the cremasteric. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So they, it's like if you like like job is to like suck your testicles. Yeah. You can suck your testicles back, not back into your body, but like like, back (laughs) up, like kind of in that direction. Uh, they found thermal asymmetry in both naked and clothed subjects. Uh, by the way, I'm in, I was in, I was Wait, in, so do they have people driving naked? Yeah. That's what I'm wondering too. I think they might have. Um, but they, they, you know, they taped, uh, thermistors to, to, to the two sides and with a little, little pack they wore to uh, monitor their, uh, I'm just imagining these postmen and bus drivers being, what the hell did I sign up for? paid well i know i was gonna say it's like it's all well and good you're thinking about that little compensation you're getting until they hand you the ball thermostat yeah. <laughs> i don't know though all right I mean, if I'm i got gonna... offered enough money I, if they wanted to do like the asymmetry of my nipples or something i'd drive around naked with things if you paid me enough okay i would probably do the thing i wouldn't drive around naked i draw the line at driver uh, i don't know if someone's gonna give you 10 grand to do it for an hour okay if you're gonna give me if you're gonna give me 10 everybody grand, everybody has a price there is a price right <laughs> The Peace Prize was given to a multinational group that studied the psychophysical and topographical nature of the pleasure of what? Uh, was it bathing after two weeks of not bathing? Uh, scratching an itch? Uh, tickling or being whipped? Wait, this is the Peace Prize? <laughs> this is, is the Peace Prize not just for like doing a really incredible <laughs> thing? Not for like Ig Prize. Nobel Prizes. <laughs> this is Ig Nobel. Oh. Ig Nobel. Have you been under the impression all this time that this I is a Nobel Prize? Yeah, I've been really confused, and I'm like, wow, the bar is a lot lower for a Nobel. I'll review your options again. I need the question stem again, because I was still yeah. trying to wrap my head around how this was a peace prize when you were going through the question stems. Uh, the study was of the psychophysical and topographical nature of the pleasurability of bathing after not after two weeks of not bathing scratching an itch um tickling or being whipped gotta be scratching an itch I was, this is the best feeling what was number three? i don't know have you being, ever uh, been number three was tickling to not take a shower i kind of hope it's being whipped though i kind of uh <laughs> and now we know something about mckenzie Wait, okay when Never you say happen when you say topographical uh, Can you offer clarification? Uh, position on like the body, I think. Position on the body? Yeah. Okay. Um, which, one, which one had topographical in it? No, they, know, they, the they're all... Oh, yeah, they're sorry, all the question stem had it. Psychophysical Clearly. and topographical nature of pleasurability. Not following I, this whole thing. It's hard. I'm going to say whipping because that feels like... Either whipping or itching feels like the point where like location on the body matters the most. Oh, so. that's interesting. No, I, I kind of don't... I, do, I, I kind of don't want to be right. Hair but. and face matter a lot with body. I'm going with the bathing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of these would fit well with yeah. the... the, the the uh, pattern we've been seeing. 
Um, well, uh, I made up everything except scratching an itch. Oh, okay. Nice. Subject had itches so induced through the application of cowhage spicules, which I believe is a, from a plant. Sure. Um, in three spots, the forearm, ankle, and back, the study found that the experimental itchiness was most keenly felt in the ankle, while scratching attenuated itch most effectively on the back. I would I believe the back. Yeah. The back thing is, that I mean, who doesn't really love good. a damn good back scratch? Oh, yeah. yeah. It feels so Do you think? I, I think back scratch supersedes head scratch. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Me. Yeah. Back, scratch, back scratch is definitely way better. Have you seen those like head scratcher things, though? That's just the little wire spider that you just oh, yeah. kind of slurp oh, yeah. over your head. That is the that is amazing. I, they always look like scary. Oh, they the look like head a, Yeah, they look like a brain like, extraction go machine. Go to like one of those like makeup parties. They always have that. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, those, anyone that, you know, like, those makeup parties. Friends like sell the makeup and then you have to That go. is oh, grounds yeah. for unfriending on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get what bothers me. First about of all, it. it's a judgment problem. Well, I don't want to, you know, condemn people. Oh, yeah. But. Sorry for all of you that make your money off of it's like, selling Tupperware and, <laughs> and teeth whitening things on Facebook. Like, you can sell it if you want. But what gets me is when they pretend like we're friends so they can sell. Like, I'll get messages from people that I haven't talked to in, like, three years. And they're like, and when when we were in the same place that led to us being Facebook friends, it's not like we were actually that great of friends. And I get these messages like, hi, I miss you so much. Can we get coffee? And then... Later, like, they are like, oh, yeah, I just want to sell you my Mary Kay or my whatever. I've Not been waiting for this opportunity, and thank God you reached out to me to, to purchase, uh, you know, Mary Amway. Is still a thing? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well. I get, I get them for all sorts of companies. Schemes, I guess I have a lot of them. I don't right, specifically then. remember how well you did on my little quiz, but let's say we all did really well. We Yay. all learned something. I needed, we I all needed some affirmation today. That is our show. Abby, Mackenzie, Miranda. Kate, who had to step out to uh, do the rest of her job. Thank you for hanging out with me today. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Was that a, uh, Not at all. a rhetorical Just like a question? Long, awkward pause? Not at all awkward. Uh, and of course, thank okay. you, Short Coats, for making us part of your week. If Dave new just here, needs affirmation incredibly badly. I need as much affirmation as anybody else. We love you, Dave. If you're new here, thank you. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever fine podcasts are available. Your questions, listeners, are what we live for because they mean the show can be about what you want it to be about. And I have to do less work coming up with random things to spew at you each week. So send your questions and comments to the shortcoats at gmail.com or leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. While your podcast app is open, give us some stars and a review to let us know if we're doing right for you. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our reluctant executive producer is Kate DeCherry. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Cabosphere. Talk to you in one week. Bye.